The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squatbox. Welcome to the last program of the week. Markets in a holding pattern ahead of today's non-farm payrolls jobs report. Uh, Jobs growth forecast to slow. The Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester repeating the bank's resolve to curb inflation through rate hikes. The Bank of England painting a bleak outlook, expecting inflation will top 13% in October and the country will fall into recession this year as it makes the biggest rate hike in over a quarter of a century. I think the you know, debate around, you know, well, if you didn't raise interest rates sooner, is it, you know, wouldn't it have been different? Frankly, you know, it's, it's made really by people who think that you know, policy making is done with hindsight, and I'm afraid it isn't. Tesla shareholders approve a three-for-one stock split as Elon Musk teases more factories and a potential share buyback. We'll, we'll end up building, I don't know, probably at least uh, 10 or 12, uh, 10 or 12 gigafactories, uh, and there will there will be really gigafactories like output, uh, you know, aiming for output, average output of like one and a half to two million units per factory, which is enormous. Andy had a lot more to say. We'll bring you all the details. In the meantime, Alibaba posts an earnings beat, but quarterly revenue falls for the first time since its New York listing as the e-commerce group suffers from China's strict COVID lockdowns. Welcome back, everybody, and happy Friday. I hope uh, you're looking forward to the weekend, but not so fast. We've still got lots of things to get through on the show today. Let's take a look at the U.S. markets. A mixed picture, as you can see there, with the Dow sitting to the downside by two-tenths of a percent. Part of the problem here is it was weighed down by the energy sector, which indeed is currently sitting at the uh, at the lowest in some time. Indeed, the sector had its worst day in a month. It is still, by the way, the best-performing sector year to date, with a gain of about 29%, but more on that in a second. The Nasdaq was the outperformer. You can clearly see here that it was pushed higher by technology shares, which were enjoying the fact that we saw yields moving to the downside. The Nasdaq is now at the highest since early May. And the Nasdaq, oh, excuse me, there goes my pen. Uh, Lucky I wasn't throwing it at anyone in particular, just into the void. The S&P and the Nasdaq have now had their third straight weekly gain. The Dow, though, is still down week to date. Let's flip over the board and take a look at those yields that I was just mentioning. So we did see yields push to the downside. Uh, we're still seeing between the, uh, the twos and the tens, the yield is the most inverted since September 2000. So uh, you can read into that what you like. Lots and lots of uh, significance with regards to the inverted yield curve. Uh, you've got the US two-year currently yielding still over 3%. The US 10-year, however, has pushed down below the 2.7 mark, sitting at 2.68%. 
Let's take a look at the dollar crosses. Not a good day for the US dollar. Indeed, it was a very bad day for the DXY. Uh, so we had a number of currencies which were generally firmer against the greenback. Uh, notably, uh, the, uh, the yen did push to the upside. Indeed, it was sitting yesterday uh, above 134, pushed down below the 133 mark, around 132.80 at one point. Uh, dollar trying to claw back some ground uh, in trade so far today, sitting there at 133.37. Uh, sterling dollar is sitting on the back foot in early trade, sitting at 121.37. Indeed, it has been weakening uh, since the beginning of the year, but uh, not as bad as the round the 118s that we're sitting at in the middle of June. Uh, Euro dollar sitting at 102. So indeed, an overnight trade in the United States, we did see the euro push back above that 102 handle and sitting at 102.31. Let's take a look at what's going on with WTI Brent and Gold. I promised you that we'd show you what's going on with, uh, with oil prices. Indeed, we saw global oil prices in US trade fall around approximately 2.5%. Uh, so remember yesterday, we were all about the OPEC, OPEC Plus decision to only yeah, put a little tiny drop in the ocean in terms of extra output. And we were saying, oh no, maybe they should have done more. The US, of course, the Biden administration wanted them to do more. But actually, the market's been doing it for them. Uh, we have been seeing oil prices already come off. Uh, which, uh, you know, is, is a good thing. Whether or not it holds, we do not know. But nonetheless, oil prices have been pushing lower. And the WTI is below the 90 handle there at 88.97 and at Brent crude at 94.41. Uh, spot gold here behind me has been doing very nicely, actually. Just quietly, quietly in the background, gold has been creeping up third straight weekly gain uh, and week to date is up about two and a half percent. Part of this could be to do, due to the fact that the US dollar has been on the back foot. Anyway, let's move along and show you what's going on with the Asia markets. There we go. Got some uh, green on the screen. Nikkei 225 pushing up by eight tenths of a percent. Hang Seng sitting flat. I'm not quite sure where it wants to go, you know, sitting on the fence there, sometimes on the underside, sometimes on the upside. Shanghai composite up by three-tenths of a percent. And Australia up by half a percent. Big news out of Australia. Uh, soaring coal and gas exports have been filling those government coffers. And uh, indeed, it was the largest trade surplus in Aussie history, thanks to those commodities, filling those government coffers, as I mentioned, and potentially halving uh, Jeff, the, uh, the forecast budget deficit, so uh, putting us in a stronger position. Uh, let's take a look at the US futures. It looks like it could be a positive start to the trading day in Wall Street. Uh, we've, of course, got the non-farm payrolls, Jeff. That's the big thing that we're uh, hanging our hat on, and uh, I believe you've got a preview for us. Yeah, well, let's talk about that, and hopefully all that money coming into the government in Australia means they won't have to put your taxes up too soon, Mandy. That, that could be a positive, at least. Yes. Uh, so non-farm payrolls, the U.S. labour market will be in focus today when the Bureau of Labour... Well, you're in the shop. Come, come and sit down. Come and sit down I wasn't here. Quite, there are cameras absolutely it's all everywhere, right. You've Jeff, only been I wasn't two quite weeks. sure which camera to get out of the way of. <laughs> You've only been here two weeks. Yeah. We'll get the staging right at some point. And I'm never going to be asked back. Well, I <laughs> think you will blunder. be. I don't think there's any problem the with that. The pen blunder, the camera blunder. How many more blunders can we cram in before the end of the day? Uh, well, we've got plenty of room for improvement then over the next okay. uh, two hours of the programme here. Um, the Bureau of Labour Statistics then will publish the key monthly non-farm payrolls report later 
Dow Jones is forecasting the U.S. economy to have added 258,000 jobs in July, which would be down from June's 372,000. Concerns growing over a recession in the United States, with Fed officials attempting to engineer a soft landing of the economy. The Cleveland Fed president, Loretta Mester, says she sees interest rates above 4% in the fight against inflation, adding that she expects to continue hiking until the middle of next year. Neil Wilson joins us, co-CEO of EJF Capital. Neil, good morning. Good to see you back with us. Um, let's just talk about the significance of this jobs data then coming in a week where we've had a slew of Fed speakers saying the Fed needs to front load interest rate hikes and get more aggressive in fighting inflation. Up to this point, we haven't seen a whole lot of weakening in the job market, barring perhaps the jolts figures. What do you think we learned today and how important will this number be in driving future Fed policy action? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on this morning. Um, no, I think it'll be very significant, and the market is certainly uh, expecting, as you said, a consensus about 250. Uh, and just as a way of perspective, in 2021, the monthly average was double that number. So it is if, if the number does come down from last month, as, as we expect it to be, the market will be happy with that because that that means that they're you know the, the sentiment that the Fed will not have to ratchet up as much as they're uh, talking about or messaging because uh, a lot of this is about messaging. Um, you know the consensus is that 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 the Fed will increase rates by 100 to 125 basis points over the next three meetings. And the market, and you saw this in the recent rally, the market's starting to say, well, look, uh, possibly they won't have to go as extreme. Um, I think you mentioned the jolts data. I, I think we've had really three things. So if, if the number today comes in around 250, which is a, a drop, unemployment claim numbers came out yesterday and they were um, up, uh, not precipitously, but up. Um, and then the jolts data, I think, is the most significant uh, because it really sh showed that job openings have slowed down to a rate back in April of 2020, which, of course, uh, was was the uh, you know the beginning of the pandemic impact on on the jobs market. Uh, so I think those three elements together, this is the third piece that, that's coming out. Um, I think I think it's very significant. The June number saw wage growth steady, really, at 5.1 percent here, which will encourage those uh, on the dovish side of this story to argue that actually wage inflation is topping out here, thereby giving the Fed a little bit more room for a pause. Do you agree with that analysis? Um, I, I do. And I, I do think there's also, uh, Jeff, there's other signs that that inflation uh, you know, is, is starting to peak. Uh, you mentioned earlier kind of energy prices. Well, gas prices in the United States have come down pretty, uh, pretty regularly uh, over the last uh, few weeks. Um, and that's that's had an impact, and especially in America, where we love our our automobiles. Um, you're also seeing the PCE data. That's the you know personal consumption expenditure data. That's starting to to come down. Uh, core CPI is coming down uh, outside of of course food um, and energy, but but like I said, energy prices have been coming down. Um, mortgage rates. Uh, yesterday was announced. You know the first time that mortgage rates have dipped below five percent uh, since March. Housing starts are slowing down as a con you know with with the rates that have gone up so much recently. Um, you're starting to see that come back in because housing starts are slowing. So it's there's a lot of data that is suggesting that inflation is starting to peak, including you know wage uh, you know wage uh, um, inflation is starting to kind of peak out. And I think that gives, as you said, the doves uh, 
uh, people who, you know, on that side of the equation that the Fed will not have to ratchet up so abruptly over the next uh, next three meetings. But I, but but there is an expectation that in September um, and in November, 50 basis points each. And then it's really a question of what what happens uh, in December and thereafter. Talking of thereafter, maybe it's not so crazy that the market is starting to come round to the idea that in the middle of next year, we're going to start seeing the Fed pivot all the way back to rate cuts, no matter what Fed speakers have been trying to tell us. That, that's right. And I think that the, the job boning uh, that the Fed, uh, you know, the Fed governors do, that's that's part of the, um, you know, kind of the, the the role is to, you know, kind of talk up inflation, talk up rates. Um, and that really, I think what you're seeing in the 10 year uh, coming down yesterday to, you know, 200, uh, 268 basis points. I mean, that's that's a that, that's a pretty big decline from back. Um, you know, in middle of June, it was uh, 330 basis points. So that that's a pretty big decline, um, and that's why, in some ways, I think, uh, as one of my colleagues indicated, you know, the the inversion of the yield curve, you know, the 210 um, is somewhat almost at this time like a lagging indicator because we do think that you're seeing, you know, if we're not in a recession uh, in the United States um, or the UK, you know, of course, is uh, probably in a recession now as well. Um, we're, it, it's, it's certainly uh, tipping on the precipice of a recession. And I think that's what's giving the market uh, some of the folks who really think that the Fed is going to be more you know, dovish sooner rather than later. Um, and, and so that's, uh, you know, that, that, that's kind of the, the basis of the argument. U.S. midterms are only a few months away, aren't they, Neil? And, you know, if, if the economy is heading towards a recession or something that feels like recession or even just a technical recession, which arguably we're already in, uh, it, it would be easy to find a scapegoat. Will the Fed end up being that scapegoat in the eyes of politicians? Well, politicians always seek to make the Fed the scapegoat. <laughs> and that's that's historically a well a well-honored tradition on both both part both parties uh, by both parties on both sides of the aisle. So um, I, I think I think certainly uh, you know Jerome Powell, um, you know the chair will will get his share of criticism, and 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 some of it certainly is deserved because he didn't move. You know the Fed didn't move as quickly as they certainly needed to in, in the hindsight of history. Um, but I do think you know from a political standpoint, I, I think you will see the Republicans take over the House. I think that's. That's that's almost a given. The Senate's a little, you know, a little bit di more difficult uh, way to uh, something to predict in terms. Of it's a little bit closer. Um, but I do think that this recent legislation, the, which is going to happen through the budget reconciliation process, we only the, the Democrats only need a majority. I think they really have made a good case to kind of combat a little bit of this. Uh, this this over you know hit with recession um, and that's you know the the, the Schumer man, uh, mansion bill um, that really does help some of the Democrat agenda items like climate change reducing the deficit and 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 what a lot of people really like is you know the increasing in taxes on on the private equity industry so um, I do think that's a countervailing um, you know uh, a legislative uh, benefit for the Democrats but at the end of the day. It's all about the pocketbook. And so inflation combined with recession, uh, it's not going to be a great uh, midterms for the Democrats overall. Neil, so boil it down into a market view for us. Um, what do I want to own at the moment? What do I want to stay away from? Well, I think from in, in the and you saw this yesterday. I mean, in the tech area, you want to own the profitable, positive EBITDA cash flowing tech companies. They've been beaten down. It's not a bad entry point for those 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 stocks. Um, and, and I think you want to own um, you know, banks have been uh, been, a, been a very strong area. Uh, and, and it's a really good entry point because they've been beaten down you know, for the first six months. 
Um, but but the banking uh, sector is, is incredibly strong in the U.S. Uh, high capital uh, reserves, uh, you know, loan loan growth. We saw this in the recent earnings reports. Loan growth was up fifteen percent, uh, you know, industry wide. Uh, so there is there is there is a um, you know there really is an argument for the for the for the U.S. banks, uh, particularly the smaller banks, which are less impacted some of, by some of these you know geopolitical um, you know kind of uh, uh, issues that are going on uh, certainly in Europe and in the energy industry. Uh, Neil, terrific. Thank you so much for, for staying up with us or getting up early, whichever you've done this morning. Uh, Neil Wilson, the co-CEO of EJF Capital, with us to talk through the non-farm payrolls expectations. Well, the Bank of England hiked interest rates by a half a percentage point. It was the biggest move in 27 years, putting the base rate at 1.75%. Governor Bailey painted a dismal picture for the UK economy, saying it's due to enter a five quarter recession by the end of the year with consumer price inflation set to top 13 percent while Deputy Governor Ben Broadbent said the uh, energy shock caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be worse than the OPEC shock of the 1970s speaking to Jamana Bailey dismissed suggestions the bank had been slow to act it is of course a very challenging situation um, we're facing a very big shock to inflation and unfortunately, in the last three months since we last did a forecast and a monetary policy report, that, that challenge has got much bigger. It's coming from predominantly and overwhelmingly from one source, which is energy pricing and particularly gas prices. And I'm afraid it is coming from the actions of Russia. Now, our concern is that, of course, we have to bring inflation back down to target from a very high level. Now, other things equal, we think it will come down. The question for us is, are other things going to be equal? And that really is about the question of, is inflation going to be persistent and become embedded? Now, we do see risks on that front, and that's why we've acted. And the risks are, and, and, and this is where there is a domestic element to the story. We've had a shrinkage in the domestic labor force over the last two years or so, during the COVID period. And so when I go around the country talking to firms, as I do a lot, yeah, they are still saying to me two things, really. One. We're struggling to hire people. Two, actually, we can set. Yeah, we can increase prices. Mm -hmm. We're not hitting resistance on increasing prices. Now we understand obviously the, the situation, but it concerns us because that's one way in which inflation can become more embedded, mm -hmm. and then we would have to raise interest rates by more than otherwise. Mm -hmm. So our action today was very, very clearly. We feel we've got to take stronger action. As we said we would, because we changed the language of our, of our sort of, in a sense, forward view back in June to say that if we saw this evidence of persistence, we'd act forcefully, and that's what we've done. Right, and, and, and wage pressures certainly are building. Uh, pay growth is averaging anything between 5 and 6%, depending on how you're looking at it. Do you think the wage pressures would be less pronounced if the Bank of England had tightened faster and sooner than what you've delivered already? Well, I think it's important to bear in mind the shocks that we've been you know, we've been subjected to, and then sense the the point at which we can you know, understand what these shocks are because they're coming from outside. So you know, we don't make policy with hindsight. You know, I will say to people, I think you know, when we were sitting here as we were a year ago, uh, you know, I think if we'd said there's going to be a war in Ukraine, we'd have said, really? Um, you know, that's you know, that is not things that frankly were foreseen, and I think could be foreseen.
So I think that you know, the debate around, you know, well, if you didn't raise interest rates sooner, is a, you know, wouldn't it have been different? Frankly, you know, is, is made really by people who think that you know, policy making is done with hindsight, and I'm afraid it isn't. And we'll delve even further into the BOE decision and commentary later on. But let's pivot over to what's happening in India, where the central bank there has also hiked its key interest rate by 50 basis points as it battles to rein in price pressures. The Reserve Bank of India's key rate now stands at 5.4%, with inflation around 7%. And we should also spare a thought for the Brazilians, who also saw a 50 basis point hike yesterday. Yeah. But their interest rate is now 13.75% which is an unbelievable escalation from uh, 2% in March of last year. Yeah, um, very painful. At least the Brazilians have the fact that they export commodities on their side at the moment. That is very true as I well. I guess, which, which is helpful. We've had some numbers from Allianz, the headline on these. Uh, from Reuters, Allianz second quarter net profit down worse than expected, 23%. But the outlook confirmed here, the German insurer delivering a performance dampened by volatile markets. They have, though, confirmed their targets for the full year. Net profit attributable to shareholders coming in at 1.7 billion euros as against the 1.75 billion uh, from the uh, uh, expectation in the three months through June. Uh, that compares with the 2.25 uh, billion euros a year earlier. The um, uh, group giving us a, a combined ratio in at 93.6 and a solvency ratio at 200% uh, here. Um, always important to see what the combined ratio on the PNC side is uh, for these uh, um, insurers because anything below 100% represents their profitability, of course. We're going to talk with the CFO, Julio uh, Terzariol. Uh, that's a first on CNBC at 7.30 Central European time. Still to come on the programme, not too early, of course, to think about uh, what you're planning to do after work today. And if you are planning a little bit of leisure and entertainment in the local boozer, well... There's no such thing as a cheap round anymore, apparently, particularly if you live in London. Just ahead, we will be out on the streets of London with Arabile, who has been sampling, I think, some of the wares. Quite and we'll find morning, out. It? it is early. But it's five o'clock somewhere. It is five o'clock somewhere. Five p.m. somewhere, I should Yes, the, the sun will be over the yard arm somewhere in the world. In Australia. Which justifies perhaps a tipple. Yes. Surprising the number of people that actually drink while they're watching this programme, but I guess whatever gets you through it, I suppose. <laughs> Are we allowed to drink too? <laughs> no. <laughs> For more on the highly anticipated US jobs report that's coming out later on today, you can check out the Squawk podcast. We'll be back in a couple of minutes' time. This round on us. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
Uh, welcome back, everybody. You're watching Sportbox. Mandy, I believe there was quite a, a fight to get this OB, actually, oh, in really? the newsroom. Why is that? Quite a, when this one came up, there were a yeah. lot of people who were very keen. But of oh, course, there I was see. only. Okay. In the end, Did you there also was only... put your, you throw your hat into the ring? Well, put your hand up. Me, yeah, me, pick me, pick me. Please, please. But in the end, there was only one person who was up to the job. The price of a pint is soaring here in the UK as the cost of barley energy and packaging prices hit record highs. A report by the hospitality industry tracker CGA shows a 70% rise in prices since the 2008 financial crash. So, who got the plum job this morning? Let's get out to Arabile. Arabile, where are you exactly? Yeah, good morning, Jeff. I'm at uh, Cat and Mutton out in Hackney here in East London. And the interesting thing is, if I was in uh, Auckland, New Zealand, I certainly would be at around 5.30 p.m. So it wouldn't be too early for a pint, right? So that's certainly a positive thing. But quite interesting to note then that the price of a pint has uh, hit around six pounds then. And that's just for some. That's on average, of course. That's some of the pints that we're kind of seeing here. In fact, if we go to the beer board even here, you'll kind of get a sense of just what the prices are kind of looking at, uh, looking like. £6.85 even, the most expensive pint uh, out at Cat and Mutton here out in East London. So it kind of does give you a sense then of how interesting things have become. Of course, Andrew Bailey yesterday making that decision uh, to hike interest rates by 50 basis points. That was based on inflation soaring, of course, towards those double-digit figures, plus energy, of course, having gone up quite dramatically. The same factors, then, that are influencing and impacting farmers, brewers, and pubs, too. And that is why you're seeing an increase in the price, then, of a pint. In fact, we went out and got a little bit of thoughts, a few thoughts, that is, from analysts, uh, a brewer, as well as a farmer. And here they are. So if we start with uh, how beer is made, it's made from barley. The barley price has gone up uh, and has doubled since uh, 2021. In the past, when grain prices went higher, farmers would usually just plant more the following year. But this may not be possible this time around. Inflation for our businesses is running somewhere in over 22-23% and that's a function of obviously oil prices, fuel. At the same time, Ukraine, the fourth largest producer of barley, is embroiled in a war with Russia. This has limited supply, but has also ensured that the price of barley has gone up by around 70%. This, however, does only make up 5% of the cost of beer. The biggest cost that we have is our payroll because um, the hospitality part of our business is a people-driven business. Labor costs are going higher, but the tension between Russia and Ukraine has created the perfect storm as energy prices spike. Packaging makes up about 25 to 30 percent of the cost price of beer and glass packaging, glass bottles, use about 25 percent of their costs in energy. Brewing beer or distilling spirits involves a lot of boiling water um, so that involves lots of energy to get to that state. But all of these things combined are creating quite a challenging environment. The price of a pint has long been seen as the sign of how expensive the cost of living can be. Things could get worse before they get any better. 
Jeff, clearly the uh, cost of a pint is not just impacted then by the primary elements of barley, yeast, uh, wheat, as well as water, but also then energy. And that demand has gone up and throwing the energy demand then into the worst period at least since the 1970s. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.